like what am I actually aligning myself with? What am I actually devoted to in this breath? Is it kindness? Is it a sense of healing? Is it a wakefulness from the inside out? Is it compassion toward myself or others? That was Janet Stone, and this is the Running on Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and what do we do here at Running on Ohm? Well, every week, I bring you conversations with pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection. From actors, meditators, yogis, athletes, entrepreneurs, every week, people come on who can plant seeds of transformation and inspiration in your life. So thank you for trusting me with your headspace and heart space. I know there's thousands of podcasts out there, and I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to tune in. Today's guest, Janet Stone, is full of inspiration. Janet is a yoga teacher who travels and teaches internationally, a mother, an environmental advocate, a chanting artist with her recent debut album, and a teacher of teachers. In this episode, we dig into Janet's life story. Janet talks about growing up on a farm in Northern California and how she first came to her yoga mat as a release from her intense job working in the LA film and TV production industry for 11 years. Janet reflects on her unexpected path to becoming a yoga teacher and how she now balances her own yoga practice with teaching and motherhood. This conversation is not just for yogis though, but it's for anyone who has a passion. Janet offers a unique perspective on how to apply the principles of devotion, hard work, and mindfulness to your life so that you too can spend more time doing what you love and get the most out of it. If you dig this conversation with Janet, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. Let us know what you thought about it and share it with someone you know. I always love to hear from all of you, and I especially love when people take pictures of where they're listening to Rue. On the bike, on the walk to work, on their trail, it's so great to see how and where this podcast is impacting your life. If you've been tuning in for a while now and Rue brings you weekly inspiration, please consider donating to Running on Ohm's Patreon page, where you can help me provide all of you the highest quality podcasts every week, and in return, you can get insider access and exclusive content. So visit patreon.com slash running on ohm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash running on ohm to donate, and know that any amount of support helps. A huge thank you to all those people who've already joined me on this Patreon journey. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Okay, you guys, you ready to dive deep together in today's episode with Janet Stone? I love it. Yogis are like so sensitive <laughs> to the sounds. Like you, as a yoga teacher, you know from like the heater in the room yeah. can impact. Oh, yeah. And I've also, anyway, filmed you, enough. And yeah. Yeah. So let's, so let's go back. You yeah. were in film and television for 11 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you do there? Well, I began at the beginning. I was a PA. I started uh, at a company, a documentary company. And so, so small. But they were making really beautiful programs that um, were for incarcerated kids who were just getting out. And we would uh, film when they're incarcerated and what happens after and what's their life. And um, so hopeful and so beautiful. It was sort of uh, a preview for what reality television has become. I think after maybe six months of being in Los Angeles from Boulder, Colorado, I was at the Emmys. We were up for an Emmy award and I'm suddenly having to get a dress for the Emmys and I'm 21 and I'm, you know, just figuring this all out. And really it just evolved from there. I was in in a company small enough, as I mentioned, that I had my hands on everything from uh, editing boards to casting to the financials to... um, these high level meetings with uh, agents and you know the 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 whole deal 
and then I met, you know, some really amazing people and really the, the, some folks in, in, around Seinfeld. And so ended up in uh, Castle Rock Entertainment before I knew it, you know, had left the documentary world and was in really quite a bit of the comedy world. I mean, they had a lot of comedy. We had Seinfeld. We had some other sitcoms going on and um, some movies that we were exploring and getting into. And I just moved up as as you do uh, along the way. And so that was when you were 21 is when you started that journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started that when I was, well, 20, actually, 20, 21. And um, yeah, then I just went from there and ended up working on Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, ended up writing my own uh, sitcom script and selling it and was on the um, independent film circuit. So I was at film festivals with my short films all the time. And yeah, it was it was an adventure. And when you look back from there, that time, what, what moment are you most proud of? Or like, what one do you tell your daughters now? Was there a script you wrote that really still has a place in your heart? I think some of it is really relational, quite honestly, the relationships that were built. And also the fact, I think that (laughs) there's something that has come from that I kept myself really on the ground while I was doing it, meaning um, I would be pretty grounded throughout meeting anyone you could possibly imagine from that era, by the way. (laughs) And yet I would be out on my mountain bike at 5.30 in the morning, or I would be out hiking, or I'd be in the ocean swimming, and just really of the nature of Los Angeles, you know, really surrounding myself with, with the great beauty that is there. And then I would be at a film preview or a premiere of um, some new show that was out. So, yeah. So you're really balancing like the yin and the yang energies, it sounds mm-hmm. like, in your life at that time. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I was, was in it in many ways and also not uh, of it. So Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were raised in California, Northern California, I read. Yeah, I was born in Northern California. And my parents were really, you know, we use the term hippies, but they were actually live off the landers a little bit more. They wanted to, to step out from... They had a lot of responsibilities, and they had us and and my cousins and mounds of animals, every animal you can imagine. I was butchering rabbits when I was maybe six, seven years old that we would eat and use the skins and use every aspect of them. And we were milking goats and making our yogurt. And it was very of, <laughs> talk about of the land. I mean, it was very crunchy. And w- was that considered a farm where you were from? no. It wasn't the it was farm. Like it was in Walnut like, Creek, East Bay. <laughs> it was on maybe a half an acre. And yeah, they just made it what they made it. You know, they made this little tiny 800 square foot house and into a place where we had massive boa constrictors. We did, um, at the same time of butchering rabbits, we also did wildlife rescue. So we'd have 16 raccoons. We would have you know, a dozen squirrels that we were recuperating to set out into the wild, or deer, or one time we had a pelican. Wow, that's so cool. It was the full spectrum. And is that property still in your family? No, no, they sold it, and we moved up. Then we kind of moved up, and and farm life happened because my parents made the natural migration um, during a different drought to Oregon. And we were up in outside of Portland, and maybe 15 acres, uh, suddenly we graduated to cows, and 
uh, sheep and we were shearing sheep and using the wool to make sweaters and then I hit my teen years and I was not into collecting eggs in the morning <laughs> or helping birth a goat. Somehow it just became very uninteresting and having the right type of genes is what became fascinating for me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So then from there you left. And where did you go when you left home? Was it to college? No, we or didn't. I, we actually then moved again. I think they got, it got a little overwhelming. We moved to Boulder, Colorado. Okay. And that's where I finished out my high school and um, sold every animal, <laughs> got rid of every single animal and lived in a tiny plot of a house like most maybe little mini Boulder suburbs and Mm, yeah, finished out high school, moved to Paris for a year, and then came back and went to university there. And for you, a lot of the work you do now with yoga, there's a really deep spiritual connection. Mm. I was telling you off mic before we began the interview that when I first took your yoga class four years ago, it felt like going to church. Mm. You know, there was a huge worshiping component, mm -hmm. not in that anyone had to worship anything particular. Mm. But I want to know, what was your spiritual or religious background growing mm -hmm. up? Like, what was that pulse in your household like? Yeah, it was really of nature and earth and choiceful. You know, my parents made a conscious choice not to uh, baptize or to indoctrinate us in any particular place. I loved my grandmother so much, and I chose at 12 to be baptized. And, um, and then as you do, you know, at a certain point, you start questioning um, some of that and, and what that all means and, and the structure of those things and kind of what has gone down um, to support, to lift, you know, to keep these things going. And I think that's at the point at which I met my very first um, real, to me, deep Dharma teacher. And his name, he was going by Miraji then. A lot of people just called him that, but just means Maha teacher, you know, the the... But his name is Prem Rawat, and um, really I started on the path, I guess, around 16 or 17, as I had um, not really, you know, through my family been supported like in church or anything. So I think it was really tending to life and watching life come and go um, through the way in which we cared for animals, right? Something that you would birth into this world and love and which journey does it go on? Does it go become food? Does it become um, a pet? Does it, you know, what cycles um, of life are we, you know, adhering to and taking care of? And um, that great attention uh, was, was, in a sense, my spiritual practice, right, as you come into this world. And then it became more, more in the realm of, of meditation, and my practice at the time was pretty much like hardcore mountain biking, hardcore snowboarding, hardcore whatever I could get my hands on. It was very physical. You know, I loved just really intense physical challenges. So um, that wasn't, you, you, you can't picture me at 17 doing yoga asana because I was, I was out on the mountain bike high up on the ridge. 
That's awesome. Mm. And so how did meditation play with that then? Mm. If you're out mountain biking, that was the same time you also mm-hmm. got into meditation. Was it yeah. seated meditation or he was yeah. more just teaching Dharma? No, it was both. It was Dharma and there was seated meditation. Yeah. And what resonated to you about his teachings at that time? I think a respite from the, from just agitation, mental agitation, emotional agitation, you know, being at that particular point in my life and having enough, I think, openness with my family and my parents of what is it to find uh, a home within and amidst all the, the fluctuation and change. And you mentioned, you know, the, you said church, but, you know, really quite devotional in the way that I approach every movement for my own practice when bringing my right foot forward and pressing deep into my left heel, it's like, what am I actually aligning myself with? What am I actually devoted to in this breath? Is it um, kindness? Is it a sense of healing? Is it a wakefulness from the inside out? Is it compassion toward myself or others? What am I aligning with? And that's the devotional practice that I get up to. And I know so much about the the blue guy with the arrow and the blue guy with the flute. I know about the lotus lady Lakshmi. I know about Dora. You know, I could tell you all these stories and really live within that realm, but ultimately it comes down to what are we invoking in the actions of our life? So if you're going to come into yoga practice and you're going to hurl your body around a rectangular mat, like what are we up to? And sure enough, I practice a practice called bhakti yoga and it's very devotional it's really the yoga of the heart and it's remembering sort of this center space in our own being and from there then what emanates out so if you're going to come in and simply bring in your regular living of self-recrimination of flagellating (laughs) flogging yourself as as you're moving your body then that's going to be what you're cultivating. But if we can come in and use this time and this body and this movement as something other than calisthenics and push-ups, then we come alive in the heart realm and we see what ripples out. Yeah, that's deep. That's really deep because our mat is our mirror. And so how we're showing up on the mat as you're speaking to is also how we're going to show up in the rest of our lives. Yeah, exactly. So where did it for you become the point where you actually were introduced to the mat? You were Mm. obviously on the cushion Mm -hmm. meditating. Mm -hmm. So when was the first time you walked into a yoga studio? Yeah, well, that's a beautiful question, only that it didn't come to me through a yoga studio in a sense, you know, so will take me from Boulder, from how high up on the mountain, (laughs) on a snowboard or a bike or something, and, you know, um, living some time in Paris and then eventually ending up. My dad had passed away when I was 21. He was only 45 years old and he was the kindest human being. He was really physically fit and healthy and just uh, beautifully in this world. And um, when he departed, I ended up in Los Angeles as sort of a a reaction. (laughs) And um, that's where I found the film industry. And really coming out there and being just quickly immersed after his passing in this whole world. Um, Found myself somewhere maybe four years, five years in, maybe five or six years in actually, that I just woke up one day and felt a need to take my own, as they call it in the the industry, hiatus, you know. (laughs) In uh, education, it's called a sabbatical, but I... 
I basically blasted off. I went off to Egypt for a while, and then I was in India. And in India, I met a teacher that wasn't really even particularly a teacher. But then he eventually introduced me to Shivananda and started this type of practice that was taking my meditation and adding, adding a different type of breath work. And then suddenly it was my body. And then suddenly, you know, I got really sick, surprise, as you do your first time to India. <laughs> and um, the way the practices came in, it would really say that that was, that was the time. It was around 1996, I think. And um, yeah, really finding at that point the practice. And then, you know, I'm up in Nepal and I would just meet someone and they were doing sun salutations. And then I would be in Thailand in a cave and we we're spending months rock climbing. But then these people were doing Surya bees and, you know, just this various ways in which on this year and a half journey, it just kept chasing me everywhere until I eventually arrived back in Los Angeles and was sitting there sort of perplexed and now I'm going to search out, where is this practice? And someone said, oh, hey, there's, there's a place in Santa Monica, right, where you live, and it's called the Dance Home. And there's this guy, Brian Kest, and he's in there, and you'll find him. It's power yoga. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, power yoga. Okay. And so I went. There's a line around the block. There are I think actually the gathering of the most beautiful people in all of Los Angeles, which is already saying something. <laughs> and everyone just in these outfits that I was not ready for or geared for. I mean, the shortest short, you know, just everything looked amazing. And I went in and he was so amazing and such a character. And I just kept showing up again. I was the quiet one in the corner, never spoke to anyone. And was still, you know, back in the film industry and back back at it, but just kept showing up until one day I think he was traveling or not there, and I showed up to a teacher um, who was filling in named Max Strom. And that is kind of where the moment my feet really landed in this practice, and it became a home that was, um, well, still lives in me to this day, you know, his his roots of his voice and what I found in that moment. What did you find at that moment? I don't know if I could even put it into words, which is not great for a podcast. It's okay. <laughs> in that it was, you know, other than to say my roots or found a home or a remembrance somewhere within me that had maybe gotten lost in some um, achievement world or in the striving world. Um, and it, it's a place where it just dropped in to... Mm, like I met myself or something. Yeah, it was Again. this anchor, this remembrance mm -hmm. I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. And that touchstone, do you feel like that's something from Max that you kind of gained? You can return back to that moment or you can return back to that anchor inside of yourself again mm -hmm. and again throughout the practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it just lives there. I mean, it's already, it's already there. And sort of the, if I get lost in some of the, the, the head comes in and you start, moving in this direction or that direction. I mean, it can be distilled back to the moment. It's not dissimilar from when I first heard the Dharma of Premra Wat, you know, where it just was, all this other stuff is amazing and it's been all taken me and gotten me to, boom, right here in this moment. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it's those moments I feel like where you just recognize like that's home. Yeah, exactly. That home's in me. Yeah. With your father's death, how did you find that the practice helped heal you or connected you to him in his life? Mm. Yeah, well, all of it is about, you know, in each practice, most often we, we visit corpse pose. We visit this position where I actually, you know, last saw my father, which was, you know, you're reclined, you're on your back and your body is emptying out its last breath. And I think that just having the opportunity to really see that and feel that and you know, after he passed away, I was running pretty hard. I was a lot of movement in my life, a lot of stuff and activation of, of it's the time of your life anyway, that you're really doing that. And um, that was a moment. And even in those, those practices of Shavasana, where I would feel like I could meet him, and have space, I think a little bit of space when you're not out doing to, even in the postures or in the movement or in the pranayama when you sit before or after, wasn't so much in meditation, but, uh, you know, in my, because I had had that meditation practice for a long time, but f- certainly um, somehow in the practice it it was really quite present. Yeah, that's, I've never thought about it in that way, with obviously corpse bringing us right back to those in our lives who are dead in mm-hmm. such a direct way yeah yeah absolutely. but it's so i mean it makes so much sense yeah it's a clear meditation on our own mortality and just the cycle of it all that there this is the way we all go you know we all uh, end this body at some point and i think there's um, a moment you can connect with those who have come and gone possibly there or in any moment actually yeah, and that I think on our mat we can have conversations with ourselves, with our highest spirit, with all those in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like such a rich place to put it all into practice. Absolutely, and also just get to see how we sometimes cling on to drama, the little dramas, <laughs> and boy, there are so many within a within one day cycle. You know that we want to jump into and be like, yeah, drama. <laughs> When, you know, the perspective of a practice where we can really see the coming and going of it all. So from Max's class, when you had that moment, it sounds like remembrance. What was the point where you actually were were taught a yoga class for the first time? Mm. We're in front of a room. Yeah, it was really with Max. You know, I had just started going to his classes very consistently and kept going in all the regular living of my life. And um, he knew that I was one that doesn't socialize in the community. I just showed up, showed up, showed up, showed up. And finally, one day he came to me and he just said, you will teach yoga. And I respectfully said, thank you so much. What a, what a great honor. And I've got a career. I'm good. <laughs> And this is sort of my sanctuary, right? You know, and uh, this is where I get to be a student. This is where I get to be a student. This is where I get to show up and just be anonymous and be here. And um, but then he said, "Oh, but I would like you to come to this thing." And so I went to this thing, which was his teacher training, <laughs> and essentially went through it. Um, and within that, I, you know, had to get up and teach and speak and. 
um, there was an ease and a naturalness that that was certainly there, but I still was not taking it on as anything that I was going to do or do with my life. So when did you leave the film industry? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it's, it, it's kind of adorable in that um, I met the father of my children when I was up in San Francisco one night. It was I was literally up here for a night. I was in San Francisco for a night, um, up from L.A., and... I was at a big dinner gathering and I met him and we sort of kept going back and forth and I'd gone through this thing with Max and I was doing more trainings with him and just immersing myself. But also I was still working in Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. I was um, going to film festivals and showing our newest short film for the company that I had created. And so I was very much immersed in that. But kept then I started coming up here more um, and I would practice when I was up here and yeah, it just became more time in San Francisco. <laughs> and, um, when I'd be up here, I would fill in for yoga teachers and then I was up here even more. And suddenly I thought, you know, I was uh, interviewing at ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, over at Pixar at uh, Lucasfilms, you know, different projects, but none of them were really resonating. I would have to take a position that was not at all interesting to me or not at all what I was doing before. And yoga just kept, I felt like it just had me by the back of the neck and being like, oh no, remember you're, you're showing up this day. Oh, and you've, you're doing, you know, it just it felt like it you. pulled me in, in a way that one day I was at a uh, dinner party and some someone said oh yeah you know I hear you're in the film industry uh, tell me about it and I went I what's good well, I have to be honest I think I teach yoga <laughs> I don't think I'm in the film industry anymore because you know I would keep flying to LA I would keep you know connected in and keep doing these little things but ultimately I felt like yoga just was like uh no you're ours that's so great. It shows you. Yeah, very much so. That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you built community here mm -hmm. through that time. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So with your yoga teaching now, you are teaching in Bali, you're teaching in San Francisco, you were mm -hmm. just in Australia. Mm -hmm. How does that feel like to be sharing your teachings in so many different communities around the world? Yeah, yoga is many things right now. Yoga is is has always been many things, but even more so now. It's it's the right outfit. It's the the calisthenics. It's acrobatics. It's just become so many things. And and for me, I just keep really simple in my. Or maybe I'm even simplifying my own intention with what I'm up to for my practice, but also in the way that I share and to go out into the world and simply share compassion, share myself, share what I understand as the teachings at the core value, whether it's at a big wonderless festival, whether it's at a more intimate gathering up in Alaska, whether I'm in Sydney to teaching just to the teachers in Sydney. Um, it's really the teachings are the same, you know, they remain the same. You could have uh, 20 people, you could have 500 people. 
um, and the teachings are the same. And so to go back again and again and again, and as much as there might be an imagery around me, it's not about me. I mean, it's really just I'm passing through. These teachings have been here a really long time. To my best ability, I'm offering them in the way that, that have, they have been digested in me. Whatever way I've assimilated them, they then emanate out. So it's beautiful to come to what I, you know, what I call the home sangha, which is 15 years in San Francisco, pretty much at the same place at Yoga Tree, a place in San Francisco. There are many locations, but I've pretty much been in the Castro now for at least a decade. And again and again, just showing up, showing up, showing up. And you said, church, it's like a temple in that, you know, if you go to India, you see these places that everyone has brought their hopes, their fears, their joys, their sorrows, their pleas for um, their child or their, their hopes for the future or the simplicity of a good harvest, you know, and, and these, um, oblations and prayers and offerings that they've given. And we come in here in the Castro, we've been Googling or we've been, you know, out, uh, on a nonprofit or, you know, the myriad of folks that come in and yet all of our sweat is pretty much just dumped there on the floor, our tears, our giggles, our, um, sometimes, you know, eruptions into, you know, great laughter or a dance party or simple repose and long meditation. It's just the teaching in all of their form. For me, it's a desire for people to see that it's accessible while they're carpooling. It's accessible um, while they're they're, um, taking care of a loved one. It's accessible in all places of their living. Yeah. So with yoga, you're saying the teachings, and there's going to be people who listen to this podcast who may not actually practice yoga. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by like the teachings mm-hmm. of yoga, or what are the teachings or the few teachings that you really hope to transmit through your teaching? Yeah, I think it's it's becoming whole. <laughs> I think the way in which we're fractured in our thoughts, fractured in our body, fractured in our spirit, and watch yourself and your your thoughts for five minutes and notice how you're grasping after this thing or pushing this other thing away. It's like, I want more of this and I don't want that. And this wild fluctuation, the teaching essentially says there is a, there is a space within everything that is a still point. There's a place that is whole, that is complete, that it utterly, um, even the shadow aspect of things and the light aspect of things um, is equanimous yeah there's an equanimity that exists so if through me you need to find that in externally rotating your thigh bone and then planting deep down through the ball of the left foot then let's explore it there because that might be our first um, pathway in or if it's through um slow rhythmic movement of vinyasa connected with breath even if you have Within an, hour, within an hour and a half, five breaths that feel fully connected to your body, then exquisite. You know, not that we suddenly become like, oh, and I'm a yogi. And that, you know what that means? That means that you're no longer a puppet of your mind and your preferences and your thoughts. Most of us are just practicing yoga <laughs> to the best of our ability, really moving toward that place of, can I find the pathway to 
this point that is not always being rustled or jolted by our preferences. Yeah. yeah. No, that, those would be the teachings. <laughs> yeah. This speaking to that integration of all sides of our being. Yeah. So then why, why do you think yoga right now and our country is taking, like people need to come into their bodies? Why mm-hmm. is that? That we're using kind of the body to find that sense of integration? Well, it's how we experience the world. The body's how we experience the world. All of our senses are through the body. It's how um, we have our somatic experiences all, from in utero all the way on from what's what's come into um, this world and and to deny that is not helpful either and whatever access point we can find let's take that and if it's through the body let's take that and again if you come in and just feel a little calm more calm in your heart or your mind or can walk out and um be kind in a confrontation or just find yourself chilling out just a little bit more in places that you normally go toward tension or anxiety, then brilliant. Whether it's through your body, whether it's through sitting uh, in meditation. A lot of people, until they settle um, their body down, they can't even sit. They can't even get to the point of where they can sit for five minutes, 11 minutes, 24 minutes, whatever it might be. Yeah, I, I definitely, and I, I feel like I said our country, but it really, it's the whole world that we need to come back to our bodies and back home in it. Because mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, you are teaching throughout the world and yeah. I'm sure you're seeing that everywhere. Yeah, for sure. 15 years at the Yoga Tree Castro is mm. a long time oh, to yeah. show up again and again in this room. Yeah. If you could take your class now, you know, 15 years ago, what would you say has been the biggest maybe transformation in your teaching over the past 15 years? I think that, you know, in in any particular arc that we go through, there is there is a myriad of change and and I've only wanted to stay a student. I mean, really that's been my main theme since day 1 where I'm feeling as if it's new. In 15 years, that's not new, and yet I I for my own body, my own presence, each moment anew in a sense, right? So at this point, my body is different than it was 15 years ago. The people who have been coming have, different, have experienced many different things. There are people who have been practicing with me consistently for 15 years. There are some people that walk in brand new. There's some that have been there a decade, whatever it might be. The evolution or the change or, you know, I think any sort of hint of um, ambition or any hint, again, as I mentioned earlier, of striving has just melted. A lot of that is melted where I I feel more and more that if I really stay steady in being a student, then I can step out of the way. The personality of Janet Stone, (laughs) whatever you might project on it or feel that it is, same with me, whatever I might feel that it is, more and more it gets to relax and sort of step out of the way and and the practice comes and whomever arrives brings the practice alive as we, in a sense, co-create this it's time this together. It's this dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hearing from you. It's mm-hmm. this dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's really special. That room is a powerful room. Mm, it is. And I remember teaching, taking your Saturday morning class that was an hour and 45 minutes, mm-hmm. which was a little unusual because I've mostly taken classes that were 60 to 
90 minutes. Mm-hmm. What was the idea about having, having the extra 15 minutes? Yeah, I have as many as possible that I, that I try to make about that length. It gives time for people to actually transition from whatever hustle the day has been even parking, even just getting to the studio, you see so much anxiety. It's like, oh, I got to get in. I got to get my spot. It's like it gives a little bit of time for that transition. It gives a longer moment for um, Shavasana, maybe a story, maybe just a a deeper moment, and then always for chanting. Yeah, let's talk about (laughs) chanting. I I love kirtan. I wrote, um, I was a double major in college in ethnomusicology and religion, and I wrote my ethnomusicology thesis on Jayutal and my studies with him. And I know he yes, is someone you love as well. He's my teacher, yes. I would call him a friend and a teacher. I'd like to make sure that people know that he is... He's a bhakti brother. He's a bhakti brother and, you know, papa in a sense that I want to give proper respect, you know, in that, you know, just he he's, he's put the time in, he's put the work in, he's really given himself over... Um, to this path, and it has many faces for him, but yeah, he's very giving in that way. Was he your first introduction to the bhakti path, or? I don't know, you know, no, he wasn't. You know, it was, being in India, I would hear the the Brahminical chanting, and it's, you know, it's just this thing, and then I was up in Nepal and hearing, you know, in the, in the temples there and what it would feel like, you know, high up in the mountains and just these various non-resonances or resonances. And um, and then it was this time where the first time it blasted directly into my heart was Max Strom doing three ohms. That's it. And the ohm was awake and as they say the om is all you need it's the bija it's the ultimate it's the beginning it's the middle it's the end we add in all these flowery things and we love it and it keeps us entertained and it's fun and it gives us some direction and you know calms some of the the crazy of the mind but those woke me up in a way again i mean he he just had that that sort of moment and then it just kept going and it was listening to krishna das it was um, these things that would just weave into my world that I had no idea where they came from or how they feel the way they do inside me. And really, after some time, uh, not so long in, in San Francisco, I, we were collaborating on something within what felt like a minute. And that experience and then that voice, and it's, it felt so far outside. And I was chanting a cappella, you can ask anyone. I would be in that room just booming a cappella on call and response, and it would just be pure that. And it's only in the last um, handful of years or so that I started uh, going to him for harmonium lessons. And, you know, I've taken his kirtan camps and just being around more and that. But prior to that, it was really just pure bhakti, heart, simple, stripped down to its, its barest form. Yeah, it's a powerful practice. It is. Right now for you, is there a certain chant that was present for you today or you're going to mm. bring to your class this evening? Mm. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely wake up for me in various ways and they seem like they, they come forth. Um, you know, I released an album last year with another one of my dear friends and collaborators, 
Drez, DJ Drez, and it's called Echoes of Devotion. It's beautiful. Yeah, and the, there's a track on there called Hanuman Bolo, and um, very simple, and honestly, between us and everyone who's listening, <laughs> I literally just put my iPhone on and during a class when we were chanting that and calling with just pure heart. And that's why the tempo is a little bit funky, but I don't care because it was in the studio that I've been at for 15 years, in this room where people come, pure devotion. And Hanuman, you know, represents the bhakti heart, like going back to the heart and not getting lost in the monkey mind and all the grasping on, you know, uplifting and and shoring up our ego. And he's a humble servant to the highest path, as you mentioned earlier, to Dharma, to, you know, in the story, Ram. So you get to call Sitaram, 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 and Hanuman. And to me, those, um, yeah, those resonate. This is a little bold of me to ask, but would you ever feel comfortable sharing the chant here and now? Yeah, absolutely. Would you chant along with me? Yeah. All right. Hell yeah. All right. So we'll do, should we go call and response? Let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I'll just go straight Hanuman Bolo. We'll just do a few rounds. Cool. Yeah. So again, this invocation of our own heart, the way in which we can go back into its deepest longing, that it feels united and whole. And this is when we call Hanuman Bolo. Bolo means sing or call. Hanuman, again, this aspect of devotion. And the Sitaram is that great divine union of feminine and masculine, of sun and moon. So, here we go. Hanuman, Bolo, Hanuman, Bolo, Jaya Sitaram, Jaya Hanuman. Hanuman, Bolo, Hanuman, Bolo, Jaya Sitaram, Bolo, Hanuman, Bolo. Hanuman, Bolo, Hanuman, Bolo, Jaya Sitaram, Jaya Hanuman. 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 <laughs> we can awesome. say it in so many different ways and call it, but beautiful. Oh, thank you, Janet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved the rhythm of that. Mm. And you were saying that was born out of your your room in Castro, that, that chant? That chant was actually born in Hampi, at the top of uh, Hanuman Temple in Hampi, India, which is in Karnataka. It's so beautiful. And we got up at uh, 1.30 in the morning. We took... Um, these tiny little round floaty things they call boats or not boats. It's just like a, you know, the things you wash your lettuce in. It's like a thatched little thing that you would maybe <laughs> cook rice in or something. 
but somehow it floats and it's round and you sit in it and they float you down the river and then in the dark you climb up these crazy steps to the top of this temple and up there they're chanting the Ramayana Mm. calling the Ramayana back and forth they're they're giving offerings you sit there and then the sun comes up and there are monkeys everywhere and we just began that and um, then of course it came down from the mountain and went into the Castro as it does (laughs) <laughs> eventually you gotta come awesome. down to the mountain and you gotta go to the castro <laughs> we're all good things come we're all amazing interesting things arrive yeah mm-hmm. that's incredible mm-hmm. and chanting i find has a way of opening up the heart in a different yeah. way than asana practice does mm-hmm. and even if listeners just joined in for a little bit of that <laughs> you'll feel that What has chanting done for you in your journey, whether it be in your healing or in your connection to your inner home? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have, you know, zero training around singing. It's just not my thing. And yet, I mean, there's a vibration that's happening, even if you're just doing it on your own. I call very simple japa malas. You know, I just do my, I work the japa mala and just call the 108, which is very different than more sing chanting, you know, and whether alone or whether in a collective, we get this vibration going that, that drops us again from some of the mental congestion, from a lot of the clinging of the eyeness, and we become um, more focused on that vibration that happens in the throat, in the heart, literally in the body, what's, what's unleashing. Then you do it collective, you do it in a community. And yeah, the power that comes forth and desire to connect in a way that's not, hey, let me tell you my story. Yeah, now my story. Okay, now your story. Okay, now my story. It's story dropped and the light of connection that's beyond our stories. Yes. Yeah. And I would definitely encourage listeners to check out your album, Echoes of Devotion. I listened to it when I actually road tripped across the country with my best friend. We would chant along with you, which was awesome. And that's kind of cool to know. I mean, you do have a lot of online teachings Mm -hmm. and now your album, like Mm -hmm. your teachings are in the world in a way that Mm. you don't even know whose hearts they're touching. Mm -hmm. No, I get the most beautiful expressive things and, uh, you know, notes of someone who's you know, in Iceland or someone who's going through cancer or their 10-year-old is, is in chemotherapy and they just chanted this every time she would go in or, you know, the, I can't even tell you the power of these notes that come through where really these teachings are impermanent, right? We just, we offer something and it comes and it goes and I've been doing this so long that it's, it's like a Burning Man project, right? Each one has so much heart and soul and being, and you put so much into it, and then off it goes into the infinite flow of things. But then when you record, and then you have this capacity to touch people, and this is why I resisted online courses for so long, and I just started because there are ways that we can we can still keep integrity in the way in which it ripples out and then can live um, and touch and affect in ways that no one even has to tell me back. No one has to write me a note. But when they do, and I see one of those, the remembrance of, of how this is, is out there in the world. Is powerful. Very. Yeah. And you do you have a passion in particular for mothers mm. because you're a mother of mm. two daughters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for any parenting, quite honestly. But I, you know, I can only say mother because... 
that's my title. Yeah. How have your daughters, what have they, what have they taught you? Mm. How are they teachers for you? Everything. They've taught me everything. They've taught me that, sure, I could do three hours of asana. That's what that was the minimum of my practice before I had children. I could um, get in the most wild position. I could hold uh, wild acrobatic looking postures and do deep meditation. But when they come along and they, you know, spill milk all over the brand new carpet and there's literally poop on the floor and you know, uh, they fall and hurt themselves or they get in a huge fight. I mean, that is the practice. This is where talk about ahimsa, talk about the yamas, niyamas, talk about the eight limbs that have been laid out um, for a householder to be in the practice of yoga and to be ushering two beings into this world and with a desire to be awake while doing it, be mindful yeah, and not just letting some scars roll down the pipeline, you know, being um, being present and really pra- really trying to practice the yoga, not just when I get on the mat, but in everything. So they are by far, and I'm sure most people would say this, my greatest teachers. Mm, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. And in an actual sense about your mat practice, you said it's no longer three hours every day. Mm-hmm. But what does your, your yoga mat practice look like? Are there certain teachers you really love studying with? Mm-hmm. Or is it your own self-study right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I have deep respect for... There, there are a couple lineages that, that I have deep respect for um, and have been practicing in. And then I also put myself in the studentship of non-yoga um, Practices. Someone who just feels like a master, and it could be uh, a master in um, ocean swimming. It could be someone who's a master. There's a, a Shaolin circus, former Shaolin circus master. He's 77. I've been studying with him for about seven years. Um, I don't need to be in the circus or do any acrobatics, but the way he teaches to me, I, I can really receive as a student and. So these many forms, um, yeah, one of the practices I've been individually practicing on my own is, is uh, shadow yoga, but I also um, steep myself in um, my own practice, my own home practice, my own self-practice, and reading dharma. I read dharma, I you know sit, and then the bhakti teachers that are out there influencing me. Yeah. And people are going to hear this and be like, how does she have time to do all this to travel the world? You were like in Australia last week Yeah, in an actual, like real day to day. When do you make time for yourself or how do you carve out that time when you also feel called to teach and mm-hmm. to serve your daughters in mm-hmm. the world? Yeah. Yeah. So I will start cooking my children's breakfast. I will do my Surya Namaskars in between. If I didn't wake up early enough, often I try to beat them awake and and get my sit in, get my um, Ayurvedic really simple rituals in the morning in. It's almost like cleaning the platter, you know, before the day begins. I'm pretty consistent about that. Even as I travel, it doesn't matter if I'm in Singapore or Australia, whatever. I just attempt to to stick with that regiment to keep a through line, to keep a groundedness. And then Whenever, however, I can fit in the asana or the, the, the pranayama practices, they go. If I can get it in the morning, it's really the best. 
I am very consistent about practicing before I teach, whether it's 15 minutes or an hour and a half. I, I don't care, but as long as I have a moment and I might be helping with the homework project or um, with the costumes for the play or having to drive a bunch of kids this way and that way, but as long as I can carve out uh, a period of time before. You actually go into the classroom, oh, you're yeah. saying. Yeah. So what does that time give you? Uh, that's, again, my own transition period. That's my own sort of coming from this this way in which through our day-to-day, it's easy to to follow all the streams of thought that take us in different directions. It's a way of, of bringing the attention back in so that I'm the most uh, cleared out vessel that I can be. I mean, that sounds a little high and mighty, and that's not the way I mean it, but just the cleanest uh, that I can be as I walk into a space to offer to others. And when you teach your class, for example, tonight, how much preparation do you do of the sequence or of the theme for the class? Mm, I think it really, for me, and this is not what I advise when I'm, I'm teaching teacher trainees or, or immersions, and um, it really comes alive when I arrive and, and the moment meets me and the people meet me. And, and it is informed by the practice that I that I have just done because, I, again, I practice before I teach, so it is often informed by that. But I might have a full practice that I think, oh, yeah, this is going to really translate, and then I'm met by something completely different that makes no sense whatsoever to what idea or notion I had brought into it. Yeah, so you let, you mm-hmm. let what's in the room also dictate, mm-hmm. it sounds like. For sure. And then I get the question on a week-to-week basis from people, friends, listeners, asking about yoga teacher trainings. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I know I'm ready to do a Mm -hmm. yoga teacher training? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Because a lot of people must want to study with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. And, you know, I've actually, because I've been doing it as long as I've been doing it, I went through the cycle of full teacher trainings of 200 hours, 300 hours, 500 hours. We have a 1,008-hour program. You know, we have a whole stone yoga school. But really what that's about is a container. I think people are always ready to deepen their practice. The way that I offer it now is I call it immersion because I don't – I kind of wanted to take myself out of the game of making more teachers as opposed to deepening practitioners' lives or deepening their – connection with the practice and if they then teach from that point beautiful and giving them all the tools that are given in these things but really wanting to shift the focus from like oh then I can regurgitate this and push this out into what am I ready what what space do I have within my own mind body spirit that I want to that I want to fill up with the with this or these teachings or this uh this particular modality of knowing myself more deeply or more intimately or, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, Yeah. very much so. I think that's speaking to a similar way with you and your your own yoga journey where yoga chose you. Mm -hmm. You're saying like, really let it, let the path kind of organically unfold, Mm -hmm. less pushing, Mm -hmm. more receiving and standing into the light. Yeah. Standing into the light. And really, of course you show up and you show up and you show up and And you you learn things and you do the work and you, you know, you study and you find out these things. And then what emanates from you will be so rich and so full as opposed to a veneer of some teaching ideal. Yeah. Teaching ideal or sequence that you're trying to 
yeah. make your students into. That's not right. Yeah. And then you're trying to push them in a form. And in their our day-to-day lives, we're already trying to fit into everybody else's notion of what it should look like, right? So, uh, yeah, really approaching it from that slightly different perspective. Yeah. And you were, you did an immersion in Bali yeah. in April. Mm-hmm. What is Bali like or what do you what do you get from being there? Because it must be very different than San Francisco and the city mm-hmm. we're in right now. Yeah, I've been I've been um really falling in love again and again with Bali for 20 years. I've been going um since before many of the things that are there now are there and you get to see um how vastly something changes in 20 years. It it is a spirit place for me. Uh, kind of like no other. It is. Um, I really want to find a way to protect it as much as possible. So many people are going, and they want their peace. And um, so when I go, you know, I lived there, and uh, about a year and a half ago, my girls went to school there. And um, there's a school called the Green School, and it's a, it's really environmental school. It's about like making environmental leaders. And so that the fact that we got to be in that and participate in the Green School and still support it to this day, and want the word to go out as much as possible how we can. Um, bring attention to taking care of it. But Bali, Bali is to me luscious. And if you, if you know anything about the deities, Lakshmi, it's just this like auspicious, warm and uh, place that holds you. The people there are so generous and kind. And you can hear a million different stories this way or that. But after 20 years, I mean, really feel that when you land there, the, the, the generosity of spirit is everywhere. Mm. And... I will say that there that I'll use the term God, but I will say the divine comes first for them. Like they make their offering that will come before any business deal that you do, before any money exchange, before any property exchange. It's just they make their devotion, their offering. That comes first. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. That's such a different mm-hmm. order of things mm-hmm. yeah. than in San Fran or yeah. in the U.S. Where... And that's what how I really attempt to run things. It's like the spirit of things first. If you're going to work for me, if you're going to work with me, if we're going to create something together, that is where I go first. Yeah. So what are you creating right now? What are you excited about? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so many things. We really get to to dance in so many realms and I'm going to make another album for sure. Yeah, another chanting album. Yay. Um, right now we are offering really Dharma online content, you know, through our own site. And so that people far and wide, no matter where you are, can really come to these practices. And, you know, I I have many great connections. So it's really between this play of of showing up at festivals where it's delight and light and um, then also deeper workshops and deeper immersions that we get into and up to. And then really coming to that era where after we've taken care of ourselves, we've kind of found out where we are. It's like, okay, this is my life right now. How can I let this practice then ripple out? So being in service, being, you know, finding pathways as Seba, not ones that you need to post on Instagram, but just these really simple, subtle ways of feeding people in your neighborhood, of, of minding someone who is down or hurt or not doing well. 
um, all the way to, you know, supporting my friend Danny Paradise supports this human trafficking place up in northern Thailand. So it can be all the way out there. It can be in India. It could be right here in our home. It could be in the Syrian refugees. It could be pick a place where you can give some focus, animals, suffering, whatever it might be. And, and for me, just reminding people that the five minutes that we take to compose a post in our head or, or something, we can write a letter, we can make an offering in some way, in some direction that is um, outside of ourselves that, that, that really is in service to the bigger picture. I love that. I mean, it's speaking to putting yoga into practice mm-hmm. off of the mat mm-hmm. and in how we relate to the entire world. It's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ahimsa, that, 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 that compassionate living, the, the nonviolence, but even going beyond that and making compassionate acts out into the world. Um, and once again, they don't have to be big. And I really want to remind people it's so simple. It can be so simple. Is there a certain effort in particular that you feel really passionate about? Yeah, I mean, definitely the the orphanages, you know, the, the kids are sort of displaced. The human trafficking is a really big one. Um, you know, locally, it's very easy. I support Glide Church, the family for Glide Church, and, and they... They just simply support families and Zen hospice uh, care, so for people who are on their way out of their life and out of this body. Um, and definitely animal. I'm a big advocate for the, the voiceless and the way in which, you know, they're, they're telling us that in the last 40 years we've headed 50% of our animal population into extinction, that, you know, is there a way that we can at least speak up a little bit for the voiceless? And going back to your roots, I mean, you oh, yeah. grew up... that's right. <laughs> ...surrounded by animals. <laughs> yes, for sure. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I'm just really touched. You've taken the time, and I am really honored that we got to share this space together and chant together, and <laughs> I'm thank you, Janet. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming and finding me and for being in this practice in the way that you are and sharing out what feels like bhakti to me through through the podcast, but also as you move around the world. Hmm. <laughs> and as, as we say when we sign off from anything, Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. It was such a gift to talk with Janet in her home city of San Francisco last month. As you heard this mentioned numerous times in the interview, Janet teaches regularly at Yoga Tree Castro in SF. And after recording the interview, I actually got to take a yoga class with her, which was incredible. So check out her website, JanetStoneYoga.com, where you can learn more about Janet's teaching schedule as she's traveling and teaching literally around the globe. Her album Echoes of Devotion with DJ Drez is also amazing, and you can find it on iTunes. So before I sign off for today, two asks for all of you. One is to please consider donating to Rue's Patreon page. Help support me bring all of you the highest quality podcasts every week, and in return get insider access into the podcast and exclusive content. Visit patreon.com slash running on ohm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash running on ohm to donate, and know that any amount of support helps. A huge thank you to all those who've already donated. My second ask doesn't take a dime, just two minutes, and that's to leave an iTunes review of the podcast. You can do it right now from your phone. Click on the reviews tab, and even a one-sentence review makes a world of difference. 
Thank you to all those who've already left reviews. I'm so grateful for your support and know that I've read every single one of them. I always love to hear from all of you guys what moved you from the conversation with Janet and deeply appreciate when you share this conversation with your community, your friends, your yoga buddy, your mom, someone you feel like who's ready to live a life of devotion. So thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rude, filled day.